look at the more recent history and what's been going on at St. Mary's Mission. And we cannot talk about St. Mary's Mission without talking about this woman, Lucille Hartz Evans. Now, having done this as something new, normally all the docents teach what you've just been heard to everybody at visits, but this is all new now. And so we really had to scrape through all of our records to be able to come up with what we're going to present to you. And I've kind of acquired an affinity to Lucille. I never knew her. She was already gone by the time I got there. Um, but St. Mary's Mission does not survive today without this woman. It was her perseverance and fortitude that has got us to where we are today. A friend at her funeral called her courageous and tenacious. She and I share a birthday that's the same. She was born July 24th, 1917. And as we all know, it's uh, World War I. We've got prohibition going on. We have one of the first immigration acts being passed where literacy is a test to become a citizen. And at the age of five, she becomes an orphan. One has to wonder, because I couldn't get a hold of her daughter, whether her parents passed away in the influenza epidemics that were sweeping the nation. When this happens, she's shipped off to Stuttgart, Arkansas, and she lives with her grandparents. And it was a, it was a struggle. It's, you know, by the age of five, we're going into the depression, and so putting cardboard in her shoes and and things like that, and getting to school was a, a great effort. But she does very well in school, and um, after high school, she works in a steno pool and goes to business school at night. By 1943, she's in Little Rock, Arkansas, and working for the government. She meets and marries James Evans, and he's older than she is. He's about ready to retire. So uh, by 1948, and I'm picking 48. Here again, our records are a little hazy, but I'm picking 48. I'm telling you a secret. I was born that year. Um, and they get to Stevensville. They become acquainted with the community. Of course, they start hearing the history of St. Mary's Mission and become members of the community. But she decides to stay at home mom because she has a daughter by this time. Now, this doesn't mean she's just cooking and cleaning. This woman would never just do that. <laughs> and she becomes very involved with the, um, pre she becomes president of the District 1 Parent-Teacher uh, association. She later becomes uh, a member of the board of the State Parent-Teacher Association. And time passes, and by 1967, her husband passes away. She's only 49. So by 1968, she enrolls in the University of Montana, and she majors in journalism and studies history. By 1976, she writes St. Mary's Mission of the Rockies 
For the history department at the university, it was an omnibus requirement. That same year, she receives a certificate of recognition from the Montana Bicentennial Commission and was awarded membership into the International History Honor Society. 1981, she writes Good Samaritan of the Northwest and is one of the organizers of the mission event Roots of Montana Pluralistic Traditions, which is held at the university. Now, um, I'm mentioning these books, and there's many more. We do have them over there if you care to look at them at the end. So, and we even have some available. Nineteen eighty-three, the history of Montana Mission stained glass is published. A year later, she receives a Doctor of Human Letters from Carroll College. Nineteen eighty-seven, she spoke to the uh, Montana Legislature to ensure that Stevensville was officially recognized as the oldest community in the state. Nineteen ninety-one, she receives a plaque from the Montana Historical Society for contributions in Montana history. By nineteen ninety-nine, she says she can't die because she has way too much to do still. One week before she passes away, she previews the uh, editing edition, you know, for the book. They call him Lolo. These are just a few of the compliments and accolades of this woman. Now, the big focus here, though, is all through the 70s and the 80s, she provides the chief push to restore the mission and build a visitor center in a gift shop. Can I do it twice? Yes. Um, we're going to talk about Chief Victor's cabin. Now, it is not the first building on the grounds to be restored, but because it's the oldest, we want to talk about it first. And as we heard in 1882, John Owen suggested that this be built for Victor and his wife. Now, funny thing through history and over time, it kept being called Charlo's cabin. Charlo never lived there. So it's just kind of one of those funny things that you come across. But anyway, Victor's cabin um, is seen here, and he lives here until the, like I said, 1862 or excuse me, 1870, he's on a hunting trip in Three Forks when he passes away. His wife continues to live here, Agnes, until 1884. That's the same year Father Ravelli passes away, by the way. In the 1900s, uh, the Magnet family somehow is residing in the cabin. And that's when all the additions that you're seeing over here to the, to here, and back here, not the building there, but right on the end, all of those additions were happening then and in the Depression, because in the Depression, it was also lived in. By 1988, 
And this is just another view of how bad the building was, and look at how dried out those logs are. But by 1988, a $10,000 Montana Arts Council and State Historic Preservation Office grant enabled those additions, and they're already off here, to be removed, doors and windows to be uh, replaced, new doors and shutters to be built and installed, foundations to be built, and you know repairs in general, massive, endless. <laughs> And with that, this is how it had appeared when it first opened as a, a historical building. Now, I know it's a poor quality picture because actually this is the only one we have that shows what it looked like in the past. That's paneling, that cheap trailer type paneling and carpeting. <laughs> But at the time, it, you know, it was considered a, a good thing, and we got the start on telling the Salish story from that building. It's also got recessed lighting. It was, it, you know, we look back now and we think, oh my gosh, you know, <laughs> what were we thinking? 2009, we received an Indian Education for All, which provided for improvements. And 1910, there was a uh, Montana Reinvestment Fund uh, allotted to us also. And so it turned into this, which we hope is better. The carpeting has been removed, and the paneling was taken down. Here's the white you're seeing is linen. Now, in the day, when Victor would have moved in, and maybe shortly after, they would put linen on the walls to help start insulating the inside from the weather. And over time, what would happen is newspaper would get stuck to that, and eventually they would uh, put wallpaper on, on it, all in an effort for more comfort to live there. And so having it back to maybe it's just built and the linens put up gives a better picture of how it would have looked right, right after it was built. And of course the carpeting's gone and we've managed to get uh, recess or uh, pot lights and all that really look nice. And of course the, the Salish have helped us improve the exhibit in that building. And with that Indian Education for All fund in 2009, um, we um, were able to build also the Salish Encampment and Botanical Garden. And this is just a fraction of it. There's a few more teepees and much more garden. All of the shrubbery around this are plants that the Native Americans in that area would have used day to day, berries, grains, etc. Um, and then, of course, the teepees, the Salish do provide us with canvas covers. Of course, you know, we can't do the buffalo thing. One, it would show up missing, and two, it takes eight to ten to cover a teepee, so that gets a little pricey. Okay. So then, we move on to the, really, the first project, and the bigger one was restoring the chapel and the connecting buildings. Now, refresher, the chapel was started um, 
or excuse me, the Salish asked the fathers to come back in 1865, and Father Ravelli comes down from Hellgate. That's where he was at the time. And by 1866, he builds. Oh, no, no, no. Sorry. I'll get it. He builds this section. This is the original part from 1866, okay? Just this part. And then, right after they get this built, they start adding the study and the um, dining, dining room and the kitchen, etc. Um, they get done by October of that year, and then sometime right after October, they get the barn attached also. Note here again the window that's facing this way where the brothers would have slept and all. 1879, they, oh, darn me, I am not tech savvy, you can tell. Okay, um, we start 1879, they start this part of the chapel, which also includes the bell tower entry, and it is, of course, completed, and the bell Joseph is blessed and we have what is actually still there today except for the barn. Sometime in the 1900s, the inside and the front face is all painted white. You know, that false front image when they painted the front of the building. Over the next 30 years, every community, uh, year, community members strove to preserve the integrity of the building. It should be noted that these buildings, though, stood open. You could walk in and out of them. There were artifacts in there. So when do we have anything today? I saw it in the late 1950s. And I did. My dad and, you know, we were children. We went in to see this big historic place. There's, there's nothing, no signs, no nothing. And you just walked in and looked around, poked around. It, it in many ways, was very impressive, but not impressive. 1970s, St. Mary's Chapel was listed on the National Registry of Historic Places. During this time, Lucille uh, Evans, Mary Vandehey and Martha Burke, Burke, excuse me, worked tirelessly run fundraising and coordinating, coordinating uh, restoration. Now this. 1973 to 75, they refurbished the inside to what it was. They got rid of all that whitewash, okay? Now, it's really significant because, of course, when I walked in, retired, walked, decided to donate time, and I walk in the door, I'm looking at something I never saw before. It's wonderful. We can peel through those layers of paint to find what was actually there underneath. And it's so perfect for the time period. The rusty orange, and you can barely see it. Oh, I did it again. Gosh darn me. Right here, right above the pews, to the floor, is olive green. Well, that rust and olive green are total Civil War colors. You get any, any art book that tells you what colors were popular at what period, these two are the Civil War. The blue and the blue-green would have been colors 
that we think of in the church. Mary always wears blue, that shade of blue. And these priests are from Europe. All of their churches there are these colors. So of course they want to bring them with them, part of home. The odd color, which doesn't show up quite as well in this picture, but it did in my cohorts, is the yellow in the altar. There's a little band of yellow in the altar. And this was a nod of Father Ravelli's to the Salish. That was a color that was important in their culture. It was a sacred color that implied victory. And he put it in the altar right there to honor them. So it's so cool. Yes. Here's those little scallops, and they're blue, but they're banded with the yellow before the white. And it was, if you're still here when we're all done, and we can flip back through, it really shows up in her picture. But see, she was so much closer, you couldn't see the olive green at all. <laughs> 1983, the Catholic Diocese in Helena uh, relinquished all financial responsibility to the St. Mary's Mission Board of Directors. 1984, we go on a massive inspection uh, to formulate a, a more logical restoration program. And of course, they find rye rot, they find you know, failing chinking, uh, uh, bug infestations, all kinds of nasty things. But the work begins. They start a long process, process of refurbishing. Numerous donations came in, um, hundreds of man hours from family, friends, and volunteers, plus companies that donated time, energy, and materials brought about a stabilization of the buildings. And this is Evelyn. Um, Lucille Evans with the crew that did the fumigating. This was, a, I've got a few more photos, but this is spectacular because they enveloped the whole line of buildings. It wasn't just the chapel, it was a whole thing in a big plastic and fumigated. It was quite impressive. And of course they did insulation. Hundreds of man hours of scraping and painting. And that scraping and painting and oiling of logs and all keeps going on. And this gentleman, Chris Weatherly, is our historical building preservation. And he is forever working on our buildings when he can find the time. Um, if any of you know how to keep flickers from nesting in our logs or bats from the attic, please share with one of us. We will pass that knowledge on. We have a major problem with that. This is an early picture of that study on the inside before they really got going. It was like after they fumigated. Um, there used to be a false ceiling in this room and they had just taken it down. He's shoveling it out. Um, by the way, oh no, did it again, learn. This is Father Ravelli's uh, desk. You're only getting a fraction of it. And the deal is that false ceiling, this desk has a back to it that's really, really tall. And thank heaven when they put the false ceiling in in the 40s, they cut around the, the top. They didn't cut the top off. They kept the desk and they just cut around it. And when we put it back, we did the same. We didn't damage it. Okay? 
check out too, there's some of that wallpaper behind the gentleman in the corner. You can't tell what it looked like real well though. This is the way the dining room looks now, more or less now. And remember she told us that Father DeSmith went back to Europe 19 times and brought back wallpaper and carpeting. We even have Italian curtains in that study that I did, you know, wasn't ready for you to see yet. But so you got to come and see our Italian curtains. Okay. This is the kitchen as it is now. Of course, we had to rebuild um, that. It burned, you know, 1906, 7, 8, 11. We're not too sure, but actually the barn is what burned, and the kitchen was so badly damaged that, of course, it had to be taken off for safety reasons. Um, then we had a problem with the, the uh, cross that was on the top of the tower, the bell tower. Father Valley had built that in 1879. Yeah, 1879. And of course, by this time, it is totally rotted. And it's, what are we going to do? And they had taken it down for safety reasons. Well, this gentleman by the name of Bill Taggart from California, a sometime visitor to Stevensville, comes along and and actually, in the end, I mean, he took it home for a day, the original, made some measurements, and in a week, two, I think, comes back with this, a brand new, exact duplicate of Father Ravelli's. And Father Michael Smith blesses it, and of course, then we had a wonderful process of getting machinery so it could get up on the building and attached. We do still have the originals in the case in the entryway of the chapel. And she's telling me I'm running low, so I've got to move along here. This is Father Ravelli's cabin. It was built in 1869. It too was occupied by people during the Depression. This door that's facing us is one of those that shouldn't be there. Okay, so keep watch here. In, uh, yes, 1975, the Montana Pharmacist Auxiliary um, Grant, which was only $1,345, enabled us to restore the pharmacy. Remember she showed you the walk-up window? Well, this is what's behind it. And he actually made uh, salves, cough syrups, things like that that could be put put through the window of people like that needed things on a regular basis, right? And um, by the way, that, that foundation also gave us the mortar and the pestle in this picture and the pill maker, which was, you know, really sweet. Of course, by um, 1983, we're having to do a real, uh, you know, discussion of uh, deterioration. They fumigate it also and envelop it. And this is right after it was reopened. This is where that door is, by the way. Um, the cupboards were there in our original. They're part of that lending library that we were the first of. And so this is how we camouflaged the door on the inside. 
This is the outside a few years ago. Now I noticed when Chris oiled everything this uh, last year that the door is even less visible. And we, of course, have ongoing issues with trying to keep the buildings up, aging buildings. So all the plants are gone. You know, those rub the, the plant, the uh, logs and all. And actually, we've even put downspouts and eaves troughs on. I know, not even an original thing, but you have to sacrifice that, although they're very unobtrusive. So. This is where we are today. Uh, we were put on the um, National Registry of Historic Places in 2010. And we were also part of the 2015 Montana History Conference. We were the closing act of um, that conference and it was part of our Founders Day celebration and that was our 175th birthday. We're 178 today. Okay, and I'm going to move us along. We also got a wonderful grant in 2016. No, no, sorry, 2015. And this is Miranda Webster. She was given to us by the Montana State Historical Records Advisory Board to come in and do a um, archi archiving for us for five weeks. And thank heaven, because all of the older photos she cataloged and uh, digitalized and, and did everything for us. It was a wonderful thing. Where are we going? Oh, yes, she's really telling Okay, where are we going? 2018, we had the Barnwood Builders there. And you guys all know the Barnwood Builders from the DIY show, I hope. Maybe not, but tune in if you don't. Um, in the long picture is uh, Colleen Myers. She's the director of Mon uh, St. Mary's Mission. And on this side is Bonnie Weisbeck. She's the president of the board of directors. And in the middle is Mark Bow, who's the host of Barnwood Builders. And they came and oohed and awed, and we were a small cameo in the middle of one of their episodes. But it energized us. We're looking at the where the kitchen is. We are missing, of course, the barn. So Chris Weatherby figured out how big that barn originally was. They marked it out on the ground so we now know and have stakes that they don't show up here. But we have stakes where and how big that's gonna be. And hopefully somebody's passing out a brochure. Okay. And we've written that. And even Chris got back to me before this meeting that we're thinking it's gonna cost us between 35 to $75,000. Now, I know that's a big gap, but that's because if we get our eyes onto some logs that are out there, um, or a building that's already in existence, you know, a log building that we can manipulate, it'll be on the lesser side. If we can't and we go from scratch, it's going to be on that upper side, and we still do too need to put, you know, prep of the ground and a foundation. So that's where we're going. Of course, the, you know, we've got that ongoing, like everybody else, uh, maintenance and, and exhibits, improvements, educational things. And we want to thank the Montana Historical Society for allowing us to be here. And it did bring a point across that we need to do something with our near history and get it in order.